Hey, welcome to the Improv Comedy Connection Podcast. I'm your host, Witt Schiller, and today we've got the wonderful Stacy Halal as our guest. Stacy is the founder of Curious Comedy Theater in Portland, Oregon, where she serves as artistic director, as well as a regular performer, writer, director, and teacher. She's put on festivals and has a broad sense of the art and business of improv that you'll get to hear a bit about in this episode. Stacy and I discuss the variety of schools, including but not just the four major schools in Chicago where Stacy trained in the before times, and different approaches to improvs and the benefits of cross-training. We also discuss house team structure, stage fright, herald in the context of story, being a leader or founder of an improv theater, and a whole mess more. You're going to enjoy this, the Stacy Halal episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Thanks for doing this. No problem. How have you been? I've been okay. It's been a, uh, I think it sounds like a very busy, energetic time for you, huh? Uh, Yeah, very busy. A little yeah. too too busy. I, I you know it was like a couple months ago finally that I was like you know you don't have to be producing a hundred things at all times. <laughs> but I I think that's because I saw a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, yeah. and so I felt like I didn't have to start an online entire new business. Hmm. Because that was coming from like a panic that this thing might last years, which it still might, as far as we know. But at least in some ways, it'll it'll have ripple effects for years, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know, you know, like the variant's going to come, and then are we going to, you know, literally be entirely closed for years? And if so, I was trying to really create an online business. Um, yeah. Almost the entire time. Yeah, I know you've got a lot of other considerations with having, you know, space. I think you have some staff that you pay as well. Yes. Yeah. We have eight full-time staff members usually Mm -hmm. plus all of our teachers plus about a hundred students at any given time and a hundred eighty to a hundred performers. And then when you start going back, I don't know, did, did you feel kind of like, I'll tell you how I feel. You could tell me how you feel. But I I felt like all of a sudden, okay, things are turning fast, at least in the way things were out out and about, like really fast. Yeah. And the the online stuff, everybody, I'm sorry, the in-person stuff people are excited about. We're starting to get some inquiries. We don't have a space, so we just don't open the door and and off we go. Not that that's what you can do anyways, but just this switch back and how do you handle the old stuff and do the new and what kind of pacing is the new going to be in person it's its own kind of exhaustion i think it is i was prepared for it when things started looking good i was tempted to do all jane as our reopening our our comedy festival our all women's comedy festival okay and you know, for nine years pre-pandemic, my summers have been consumed by planning that and being in the most intense time of planning that. Mm-hmm. And I decided just out of an abundance of caution, because we don't know if they're, you know, what's going to happen with variants whenever right. we're hanging out all summer. And I didn't want, you know, I, and I'm sure you know, like, I got really burnt out after the beginning of everything of making a plan, 
having that plan mean nothing yeah. all of a sudden, making a yeah. new plan. So I became very hesitant about even making a plan. Uh, there's only so many times you can make a plan and have it become meaningless before <laughs> you're just like, I'm not going to make a plan no. until I know for sure. So, mm -hmm. so I, and then I just knew in my gut, now I'm aware more specifically why, but at first I was just trusting my gut instinct where I was like, any transition, even a good transition is taxing. Mm -hmm. And so I decided not to do it. And I decided that we needed to have this summer with some rest and rejuvenation to recover from the trauma of yeah. the past year and a half and to start refreshed. Yeah. And even though everything happened much faster and I feel like I am watching other people opening and I'm having a little FOMO um, that we're not planning to open till September. But in the meantime, mm. you know, we've auditioned. We've restructured mm -hmm. our teams. We're cleaning the theater from head to toe, getting yeah. rid of 12 years of stuff. And mm -hmm. the part that's now obvious to me that was just the gut instinct before is like, we had 30 different shows running when we closed. Yeah. And those were developed over 12 years. So we had them all running and, and, smooth and yeah. people in charge and then they all stop simultaneously it's not like you can just start 30 shows again no at the same time so we have to really make a plan and strategize and rehearse and yeah market and so that's what we're taking this summer to yeah for preparedness and rest and rejuvenation well that sounds pretty healthy and then, so that's your plan. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> but boy, is time going by fast, right? We're already mid-July. Uh -huh. So even September isn't as far it's away far. as I had hoped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, we're, we are moving and making progress. And it, it was like, I used to describe like the mid-pandemic was like, we just were re-examining everything. It was like pulling, I might have even said this to you. It was like pulling everything out of the closets when you're trying to clean, spring clean. <laughs> yeah. And what I wanted to avoid was that feeling of like, oh, no, my mother-in-law is coming over. I'm just going to shove everything back in the closet. <laughs> uh, I really want us to finish what we've started. And I do feel like now we're starting to strategically put back what we want, get rid of what yeah. we don't want, and really have a nice, fresh, healthier start. That was one of the things I wanted to talk with you about because... As we're looking to restart, we just had a show this morning, which was it was it was really fun and nice and comfortable and enjoyable and all those kind of good things. But at the same time, you know, we're looking at restarting and not just shoving things back in or assuming everybody knows, oh yeah, we threw out that sweater and that right. that dish or whatever it is. Right. What uh, what do you think are the kind of big things that you are planning or thinking are going to be a lot different in your restart than they would have been a year and a half ago? I think I've had, it's a great question. And I think that we have had the intention to prioritize DEI efforts and mm -hmm. having so many balls rolling at the same time and fires to put out and issues to do like it's it's been pushed aside so we definitely are coming from a fresher perspective from everything from our mission values vision our board 
we still have our curriculum to do, but we've done our policies. And if and when we get this shuttered venue grant, we're going to be doing some hiring in our staff to diversify our staff as well. Oh, I see. I, okay. I just don't want to hire anyone until I know I can pay them. Pay them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so that's in the works and I'm really excited about some more diversity on the staff because I think it doesn't matter what your policies are and it doesn't matter what your intentions are and it doesn't matter what your scholarships are if you don't have representation in your staff and your leadership team. I, I don't think you can earn the trust of people who justifiably reserve their trust for people who earn it. Well, that's good. And I, I think the... Um... The mission and values part is something that uh, has been kind of front and center for me, mind-wise, and we're we're reviewing that as a full troop on on, on this coming Monday. And do you feel uh, that there there are certain things that you are communicating, like specific things that are value changes, or do you feel like these are uh, differences in sort of making sure you're applying the appropriate emphasis to what you had before, or how would you describe what's, what's new and different from a mission and values point of view? Yeah, I, I think our mission and our values have always been to be inclusive and welcoming. Mm-hmm. I think if you say we welcome everyone, it isn't enough. Yeah. I think that basically the latter of what you just asked, like, what we're doing is about specifically calling out our commitment to creating an anti-racist environment, mm-hmm. an anti-hate environment. So we're specifically calling out our commitment to BIPOC people. And I think when you say it specifically, it's it does promise that you are accountable Mm-hmm. I think it's a different thing to say. You say you welcome all people to versus like you say you welcome BIPOC people, mm-hmm. but you still play crime endowment, for example, which is a conversation I just had with Elise Rodriguez um, that mm. she had had in Minneapolis at the Black and Funny Festival. Right. Like that's a game that when you're talking about a cop interrogating a person. Oh, okay. Okay. That's like a short form game. It is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some people call it interrogation. Some people yeah, call it Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't played that in a long time, but yeah, no, yeah. that's 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 a game that probably has had its day. It right. And it's like there are other ways to play a guessing game and give those <laughs> Absolutely. cues that aren't triggering for BIPOC players. Um right. So those are things to really start thinking about and being committed to and um and I, I, it just makes a difference. And we've, I think, I think you saw, I, I even just posted about this recently. Like, I think verbally and specifically explaining our commitment to BIPOC and LGBTQ plus people has had an effect. And we have seen more attendance in our classes from a more diverse group of people just from that. Right. And that's not where we're going to stop. Um, scholarships were not having the fact that even just articulating our commitment to those specific marginalized voices has had. And you, you're speaking of online classes at this point, right? We you started, haven't... yeah. Uh, yes. And we had <laughs> in-person in auditions. <laughs> yeah. We have done that in person and okay. we had a great turnout uh, with a more diverse group of people and we've started some drop-in classes. So we're not opening to shows till September. 
Yeah. Uh, but we are we for our own shows, but we are, we have some rentals and we're doing in-person classes, which is OK. Great. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Stacy, we are obviously already in our episode. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I have more on that question, too, about changes. Uh, OK, sure. Beyond the DEI thing, too. Yeah, go ahead. Because another thing that that I think we were committed to and had great intentions of doing was fewer things, but doing them better okay. when we were spread really, really thin. As a cast or as a leadership team, both? The 100%, whole nine yards? all of it, all of okay. it. We were just trying to do so much for everyone. And yet everyone was wanting more for their thing, right? Mm -hmm. So. I would rather that our staff is better compensated, uh, less burnt out, um, mm -hmm. and that the projects that we're doing feel like we're exceeding their expectations in support in terms of marketing and mm -hmm. management and all of those things. So we did change our house team structure. Okay. What does it look like now versus then? So when we went into the pandemic, we had eight long form house teams, uh, mm -hmm. four main stage and four what we just called house teams. Okay. Um, and they had different levels of performance and we were charging for house teams for their coach and space. You provided the coach as opposed to they selected one and paid them independent of you? That's right. Okay. And we scheduled the space, managed the space. And we charged a tiny bit more for admin. But again, like there's controversy around asking someone to pay to be on the house team on one yeah. hand. And then on the other hand, it was a losing proposition for us because we never let money be an obstacle. Mm -hmm. uh, so plenty of people were not able to make their house payments. And so mm -hmm. we were not collecting those, but we weren't charging enough for those who could afford it to cover those yeah. who couldn't afford it. So we were working really hard to manage 80 people, which is a lot, right? So you're managing everyone on the team getting along, mm -hmm. the coaches, the teams interacting with each other, the space, the show schedule, and then each main stage team had their own show. So it was going to be four different shows and they'd be partnered with a house team is how we left it. And what we're going to do now is have a combined rehearsal uh, with the main stage teams and a combined okay. rehearsal with the house teams. And mm -hmm. we'll have one show that they're all working on together. The main stage teams will have one format. The house teams will have a different format, but they'll rehearse all together, and then they'll get broken into smaller groups to run it. So the rehearsals start with, okay, so we're doing this format. Here are things to keep in mind. Here are some exercises that we'll do to help. Say we're teaching Armando as mm -hmm. the format, right? Maybe mm -hmm. for the whole group, have someone come up or group come up. Someone tells a monologue. We show how to pull premises out of a monologue, do some right masterclass kind of illustrations of what we're looking for from the format, then we'll divide up into groups randomly in rehearsal so that the whole community is playing with each other at rehearsals mm -hmm. in random groups, but they will perform in their teams. Okay. And that helps us with scheduling. And that also gives you that like tighter group. We've done this show together. We right. know each other. We trust each other. 
uh, and we've developed that relationship. So that's with the help of Elise Rodriguez, who came out and did some facilitation for us. And it was inspired by things they do at Just the Funny in Miami and at FST, Will Luera's um, mm -hmm. theater in Sarasota. Uh, so that influenced some of it. And then we adapted it ourselves. But that way we're going from organizing eight rehearsals, eight coaches, eight right. spaces to really two. Yeah. Um, and then we can have more direct contact, the artistic team. Okay. So it'll be me and Kristen will be directing two of those groups. And I hope that third group will be the person that, that we bring on. Do you have a limit then based on the size of community that you are kind of deciding you can support? You know, I mean, there's, there's sort of this, I guess, general sense that a lot of theaters, I think, just assume we want to grow and grow and grow. It sounds like you're thinking of pulling back, but I don't know if you're also thinking about sort of capping community. And then if you do, what do you do with the people who have been around versus people who might want to come in or have, you know, a certain level of performance skill and maybe not a slot to perform. Yeah, that's always the struggle, right? So the mm -hmm. other reason why we did this is because our showdown show, which is our short form and medium form show, and it's our one show that brings in enough money to pay for all of the other shows and everything else we do. We weren't rehearsing it. Mm -hmm. It was and so we had a limited number of games that we've been cycling through. And if a certain group like wanted to play a game and one person didn't know it, sometimes you just jump in and you can right. fail beautifully. But sometimes there's games that really just take reps to, yeah. you know, you don't always want them to be like, we can't do it, but we fail with joy. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> but sometimes you got to show off some skills. Right. The audience at some point is like, hey, please stop yeah. doing that. <laughs> We love your joy. Can we right. see some excellence, which is our, you know, that's our driving <laughs> conflict, right? Is joy versus excellence. So how do we, you know, we, we, there were a lot of tears when we had our meeting because we have two really competing. I mean, joy versus excellence is exactly the, the conflict. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, the joy comes from being as inclusive as we can be to the entire community. And especially right now where Portland had an inordinate number of brick and mortar spaces for improv. We had nine for hmm. Portland, which is a lot for a city our size. How big is Portland size-wise? Portland is, I think we're at about 600,000 for the city itself. Okay. Um, and, you know, probably a couple million when you include yeah. Hillsboro. And, but it's like, it's a little smaller. It's pretty than similar Seattle. to Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so that was a lot of of theaters. They're all doing their different things and their different sure. approach. But we've lost many pre pandemic and even more during mm -hmm. the pandemic. So I think we're at three or four now. Three for sure. One's comedy sports. One's us. And one's the Funhouse Lounge, which you know comedy sports is a very specific thing. Funhouse tends to do like um, intellectual property and pop culture inspired improv. Okay. And then kickstand is. Um, like in in transition their training center is still going which is great um but yeah. in terms of performance opportunities like the yeah. city took a blow yeah so we were like okay we had 120 people come out to our auditions we want to make a place for as many of those people as we can and it breaks mm -hmm. our hearts when we can't it's very hard mm -hmm. for us to say <laughs> no 
And then on the other side, we know that there is a benefit for rehearsing and performing in a regular group and getting that familiarity and knowing each other inside and out and hanging mm -hmm. out before and after and in between shows. So this was our way of trying to find an in-between, just a solution that was as inclusive as possible, but still allowed for that smaller mm -hmm. feel, but wasn't as resource heavy demanding as individual teams and the individual teams were getting like super tight which is great but it was also creating a little bit of a, a rivalry between the teams themselves where did that come from i think it just comes from the, it's the downside to feeling super excited about your us is that there mm -hmm. there's a them mm -hmm. and in terms of Within our own community of curious versus other theaters, I have learned that just knowing myself that I want people to be involved in multiple venues and what they get out of that is really important isn't enough. People mm -hmm. will start to get loyal to curious and feel a rivalry unless I actively encourage people and say that a lot. I have to say it a lot. Like, Mm -hmm. What you're going to get from kickstand is different than what you're going to get from curious, which is different than what you're going to get from comedy sports. And mm -hmm. I know and love people at all of these places and all of the training centers. I'm just a massive cross training fan. When I moved right. to Chicago, I trained at IO, Second City, Annoyance and Comedy Sports Chicago. And I learned so much not just from each, but from having the perspective of being somebody who played at all those different places. Did you do that training after you were improvising for a while or did you do the training and then start improvising? After, after. I, I didn't, I have massive stage fright. So I actually didn't start performing regularly until I was 28. I always thought yeah. I'd be a behind the scenes person. And so I started improvising and I improvised for about four years on a regular basis in Portland before I moved to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And okay. I started, I skipped some level ones, but I, honestly, looking back, I kind of wish I hadn't even that. I think, you know, I was like, I've been doing it for four years. Yeah. But there's something mm -hmm. really beautiful about just starting and even starting level two. I didn't mind repeating anything. You know, you could mm -hmm. do this. I, I could do pass the clap for the rest of my life and I'm still going to get lessons <laughs> out of pass the clap. <laughs> you know, it's all metaphors. It's all the same. Like you, you just come back each time you learn more, you, you see it through a different lens and what it's teaching you and it reinforces different things. And I had the, the benefit of having a marketing job at the time where I was freelance and I would work a week a month. I couldn't control my schedule though. But I was making enough money to be able to go to all those training centers. I did them all simultaneously. Yeah. Crazy. But I also was gone a lot. So like every time I'd take a class of eight weeks, I'd miss two. Okay. So a pretty big percentage. Sure. So, you know, it was like the pros and cons of having a job that gave me enough money and time. Was it mm -hmm. also kind of kept me from being 100% in, which especially in Chicago, no, no mm -hmm. one wants you to have an outside job. Like it, you're, it's a very much a competition of who's the most committed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I did it after. And that I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did. I wish I had done it in college when I was there. 
<laughs> but I was like, I I have a Del Close story where I didn't know who he was. And my... I've, I've, I've heard this story. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it's a, well, I mean, you, you know, you certainly can, can tell it for those who may not have. It's a, it's an interesting story. And I do have a follow-up question if you want to just set the table for it. Sure. I mean, the short version of the story is just that I didn't know it was, I didn't have the money when I was in college to spend a couple thousand dollars on classes. And yeah. uh, my ex-husband knew Del Close. Uh, he was my boyfriend in high school. Uh, not Del Close, but my ex-husband. <laughs> and um, oh, gosh. good Lord, <laughs> that would have been rough. <laughs> and so through him, he, he knew him through jazz and through conspiracy theories about drugs. <laughs> and um, and so I met, he's like, I don't know, he's, he's, he's a somebody. And anyway, Dell at the time, incurred, I said, should I pay this money to get up to learn from you? Or should I just go do it myself the way you did? And he just went off on how he sold out and went on a tirade. And so I interpreted that as I should do it myself. Yeah, he never actually, that was one of the things, he never answered your question directly, did he? No, he was going through some second city, you know, he would work there and then get mad and quit and then start yeah. again and get mad and quit. And so I think at the time he was about to quit again. And so I just triggered his anger at second right. city and he ranted at, against second city, which then made me feel like it wasn't worth my $2,000. Yeah. Yeah. So then what, what happened in those years that you were figuring it out oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i moved to eugene okay. with with my boyfriend who became my ex-husband uh mm -hmm. he and i opened a bookstore i helped him open a bookstore was the conspiracy theory section larger than normal for sure for sure <laughs> he's lovely human his family's wonderful but like yeah, yeah he he has stayed kind of who he was uh okay he has this wife now who is like perfect for him and they're they're be mystics and musicians and sci-fi writers together all right um yep so so i was a hippie in eugene for a while i took some african dance i worked as a I, you know my background was radio television film so i was a video editor for a number okay. of years and was still focused on film and and how to do break into that. And again, like film, a lot like acting is a very privileged profession. Yeah. So I was working at this TV station with like people my age who were driving BMWs and stuff. Right. You know, and they could work the news, which was crazy. You made no money and you had to be there at 5 a.m. and then 6 p.m. and then 11 p.m. Like, so I lucked out or worked really hard to get this editing job but I was the night editor uh, mm -hmm. so I did that for a number of years and I think that that has fed into both my improv and my video production um, mm -hmm. skills obviously so I did that I did African dance and then I got into I wanted to do animation so I was doing a lot of visual arts at the time I made silk dream pillows and sold them at the Saturday market for a while I became a realtor for a year because I was like the silk dream pillow market wasn't enough to <laughs> take you to the next level it wasn't but all these were huh. very entrepreneurial things yeah, right oh, the yeah, bookstore yeah. and the it was really funny because yeah it was ridiculous because i was hand making these things that took me hours but you can't sell anything in saturday market really for more than twenty dollars <laughs> no you can't 
Right. Yeah. And uh, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the jewelry people who thrived in that environment. Mm -hmm. And they know that you have your 20 percent. That's your artistic satisfying, like you're innovating, right? You have 20 percent of your items you're getting to make from scratch. The other 80 percent are your tried and true that, you know, you're going to sell. But once you've designed it, they can just mass produce the jewelry. Yeah, right? They, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then eventually some of those need to get retired and some of the 20 percent that you're innovating become hits and then you move those into the 80 percent so that's something i think about all the time in yeah running that's a good theater. lesson mm -hmm. and uh yeah you got to build up your you, you got to find those things that satisfy you as an artist and satisfy the audience right mm -hmm. in the venn diagram that's what we're looking for and of course make space for the stuff that just satisfies you and i i don't think you need to make the stuff that just satisfies the audience um, if you don't want to. Yeah. But yeah, so I was just being entrepreneurial in a lot of ways. But how about on the improv part of it? Nothing. I was doing nothing. Oh, nothing. Okay. Mm -mm. I thought I was going to do it myself because of yeah. Del Close. And like I tried, but I was the Internet wasn't really a thing no. yet. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of information didn't and and then like it would be some friends would be like sure we'll show up and then they'd show up and i would try to run a rehearsal and everyone would just end up kind of hanging out and talking because yeah. that's all they really wanted to do yeah so yeah i just um was kind of focusing on trying to do film and they became a realtor because i was like oh well this way i'll make a ton of money and then i'll be able to fund be my own patron for my mm -hmm. artistic pursuits and again, another entrepreneurial sort of thing that mm -hmm. taught me a lot about the business side, but it's very expensive to be a realtor, even though they seem like they're making a ton of money when you're starting out. It's very expensive. You got to pay all the marketing, half your income goes to your broker, you know, all of that. Right. And, and I was doing it in Eugene where the average house was like a hundred thousand dollars. So I was like, if you're oh. going to be a realtor, it's the same work, but you should do it somewhere where the house is, <laughs> your percentage is going to be large of a larger house right. scale amount. But it was great. I learned a lot. I actually enjoyed it. I still, I love yeah. houses, love looking at people's houses. So I didn't really start till, till I was 28. I got divorced and, and I was a band wife then too. Like I really was kind of supporting my husband's music and like mm -hmm. I wasn't the artist in the relationship and then then I moved to Portland fell in love with Portland started improvising at comedy sports Pat Short was like a huge mentor yeah. and help to me and I knew that short form wasn't what I wanted to do because I wanted to do improv and film combined like Mike Lay okay. movies like life is sweet it's mm -hmm. a drama that had a structure, but the actors improvised a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, Christopher Guest movies and now right. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like that was my sweet spot where my film interest and improv were, were merging. So, mm -hmm. but that back then, and I refer to this a lot, like everyone started with short form back then. And I was like, this is, I didn't even know long form existed. So I took a couple classes and I would talk to Pat and he was always so open and nice to talk to you. I was just like I know this isn't exactly what I want to do with improv but I don't know mm -hmm. and then the Brody Theater had a festival and Rob Reese from New York came out Bob Dassey was there Asaf Ronan was there I got to see long form and I was like oh this is it this is a okay. ensemble telling a story together 
Mm -hmm. And that's when I locked in and started doing improv obsessively. But I, like I said, stage fright too. So it was the scariest thing I ever did. Yeah. And you say, you say that's still part of your life is stage fright. It is. I mean, it's much less. So I thought at the time that once you overcame stage fright, you're done, right? Like getting over a cold, but your, (laughs) your brain parses out things. So like stand up, like was full swing stage fright again, sketch. Cause now all of a sudden your brain's like, well, but you wrote this down. And so you must've thought it was really funny to do it a second time. And <laughs> so, now 150 people are telling you otherwise. Yeah, yeah it's just, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it, you know, your brain is, or my brain is very specific about what, what it allows me to feel confident about. And still when I'm improvising, if I do sense judgment involved in some way, mm-hmm. I will, you know, have to struggle with the stage fright. I think it's less visible most of the time, but sometimes sure, you've got your coping skills when it bubbles yeah. up. And I've, I've like muscle memory. So mm-hmm. I can, especially with improv, but like I did a talk that I still kind of feel embarrassed about because I was so nervous. Uh, it was just like a, like a lecture kind of thing for yeah okay. uh, about creative process for a group of people that meet and they have different people speak about creativity and like whew, I just was like wow I haven't felt these things like I can feel my hands sweating or shaking and then I start to yeah. worry that people can see my hands shaking right. and then that like it starts to compound itself right where uh if you don't mind my asking where do you where do you find that it like is hardest to manage? Was it harder in stand-up? Was it harder in improv, presentation situation, scripted work? It's probably, it was probably hardest in improv just because it was my first time dealing with it. Okay, okay. And at least now it's familiar. Yeah. And I have a language around it and I know it can be overcome and I know... It's a little bit like a PTSD, actually. Like I had two flights that I I used to fly, you know, I fly all the time for work. I flew all the time and Mm -hmm. not a fear in my mind about flying Mm -hmm. at all. And then I had two flights where I was pretty sure I was going to die with like massive turbulence. And the worst one was like we were in a huge plane flying from San Francisco to Boston and we were at 19,000 feet and to get out of the turbulence, they either had to go up a thousand feet or they had mm-hmm. to rapidly de- descent. And we were too heavy to go up and we didn't know any of this until after. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even talk to us. And all we knew was that we were plummeting <laughs> down and the turbulence was horrible. Like was really, really lost? violent. When Lost yeah. was popular. <laughs> yeah, it was even before that, but it, that's oh, okay. exactly what it felt like. It's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it felt like. And and the worst part was there was a woman who was losing her shit kind of behind me. And so the turbulence comes in waves, right? And then stops and comes in waves and then kind of slows down. And every time it would pick back up, she would go, no, <laughs> no. And like that abject terror hearing that from a person like I was flop sweating and shaking and 
oh, there was a dad behind me talking to his kids. And they're like, you said it would just be five minutes. And he was really calm. And he's like, it's okay. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's 15 minutes, but it's good. Yeah. So I kept like trying to listen to right, him. Listen to him. <laughs> yeah. So the next time I took, and that was my flight to Boston. So I had two flights on the way back because it wasn't a direct flight. And so I, I, it was really hard to even get on the plane. Same exact physical symptoms that I have with stage fright of like hand sweating, shaking, like mm -hmm. all of those things. And really the only way through it with the flights and with performance is is reps. And you have to endure the terrible <laughs> times to get to the other side. And there were times early on in improv I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is worth it. That's interesting because I would have guessed that stand-up would have felt worse now, and i do i did hear you say you know just timing wise you kind of dealt with it first in improv but yeah when you are if you and I, if you and i are performing a scene yeah and this this comes up for you are you also looking to your performers some of whom might be <laughs> and some who might be the calm dad talking to his son. I mean, are you are you not looking for that because you're so inwardly focused? Or how maybe here's the here's another way to 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 ask about it. If you feel like someone on stage is experienced what you described you've experienced, what's the best way for your scene partner to to help be? that calming presence for you? That's a great question. It's funny that it has never crossed my mind. Hmm. Uh, I think just, I, I think being patient. Mm -hmm. I think what usually happens when someone sees that somebody is nervous is that mm -hmm. they try to take control and over talk and mm -hmm. overcompensate instead mm -hmm. of leaving. A, I think looking calm, staying connected, making eye contact and like really using that eye contact. And, and I'm now speaking kind of from what I do now to try yeah. to make newer people is making eye contact so they know that I'm there with them and waiting in silence for them mm -hmm. to cycle through all the things till they get to the next move. Yeah. <laughs> like cycling yeah. through the, the panic and cycling through, but also recognizing with that eye contact when they're not going to and gently yeah. driving when you need to, yeah. but not overdriving. If that makes sense. Yeah. Just, yeah, it does. It does. It's, you know, I, I have a workshop uh, making the other person look good that is taking a lot of uh, tinkering with because as much as we talk about it, I feel like this kind of taking care of your scene partner has not been something that's been explored a lot. And when we- Despite we, being we, talked we, about so much, right? Which is yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, like like what are what are the techniques? And, and if in some ways you know that your partners have not only just said, I've got your back, but they know, okay, this is a sensibility for you. And this is how I can kind of look to you as sort of the, the anchor to get kind of back solid on my feet again, to keep going. Because if you're in that state, you can't, 
you can't perform well. You just can't. I mean, maybe you can fake it a little bit so people don't see it, but it's not it's not the kind of improv you want to do is when you're feeling that way, right? But that's why I was so lucky to meet Joe Bill and Mark Sutton so early in my yeah. trajectory. You know, I was just like two years in, I started doing festivals, which was crazy. And we got a lot of festivals and especially because we were a two, you know, two woman duo and there was not a lot of women groups or women at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think we got in that situation that happens to a lot of people who represent any kind of diversity, which is we got success, like opportunities faster than maybe we were ready for them. And that's probably another reason why my stage fright was so blown up so fast. Mm. But Joe and Mark are the two most supportive scene partners. Pretty calm people, too. They are. And they really see you and they know what you need. Like, yeah. Joe would always be like, you just need to know what's happening. And then you're fine. Like, I just always feel like I play my best when I play with them. They give me just this incredible foundation of calm and support. Yeah, And I think... I, I think when you're new and you're all scared, mm -hmm. it's really bonding. And I think when you're kind of when you're more advanced, mm -hmm. you can see somebody struggling and you can give them what they need. I mm -hmm. think the hardest part is when you're an intermediate person mm -hmm. because your your foundation is still so delicate. Right. That it's right. like a drowning person trying to save another drowning person. Yes, yes. And yeah. I, I think it might be for me, and it's going to end up being my answer is going to be it depends on the person. But like, sure. I think for me, I try to take care of other people first. Mm -hmm. And with Joe and Mark, because they come from that annoyance of taking care of themselves, and I always knew they were going to be fine. Mm -hmm. then I felt free to have fun and take risks and make a mistake because I knew they were going to be okay. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. They weren't trying to save me. They were just playing. And I right. knew that we weren't going to fail because they were there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's that I was trying to take care of other people before I even knew how to take care of myself, which is a funny yeah. theme of, like right now, the whole thing about what we were just talking about at Curious is like we're trying to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves mm -hmm. as a staff and as an organization so we can better take care of the other mm -hmm. projects and the other people. And when we're trying to take care of everyone and we have nothing left for ourselves, then we slowly don't have anything left for everyone else. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a... I don't know. I mean, you, you certainly can point to like annoyance about taking care of yourself or other things might be take care of your partner, or take care of the audience or whatever focus you want to have. But we need we need to be aware of all of those layers and what we might need at different times. Well, this is I don't know if we've talked about this, but that's why I love doing all the different training centers at the same time. Because yeah, because I felt like, you know, I always describe it like IO is about taking care of your scene partner first. Annoyance mm -hmm. about taking care of yourself first mm -hmm. and comedy sports and tense in short form. Even even um, Keith Johnstone will say it's like taking care of your audience mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And then at its worst at I.O., you have two people kind of staring at each other, waiting for someone else to do something. Yeah. yeah so that yeah. they can support it. 
right? And then <laughs> at annoyance, at its worst, you have like a cowboy and an astronaut, and they don't give a shit what the other one's doing. And at comedy sports, you have a scene partner who's who's playing so hard to the audience, you feel alone at its yeah. worst. Yes. Right. 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 But right. but I have seen amazing performers come out of all of those groups because yeah. they still are able to learn that they have to take care of the other things. And so I see a lot of people go to Chicago and they're like very annoying style. And so they're drawn to the annoyance mm -hmm. and then they play at the annoyance, which still doesn't round out that instinct they have to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm drawn to IO style and philosophy, but I played better with people from the annoyance mm -hmm. because I want to mm -hmm. take care of them. They're taking care of themselves. And then in return, I could free myself from trying to take care of them. Yeah. That's and, good. Yeah. And then we, you know, so I think it's important that that's why I keep coming back to the cross training, because a lot of times the thing you're drawn to isn't the thing you most need. Yeah. It's the place you feel most comfortable because it's what you're already good at. Right. And then you it's like um, it's like you're working out and just one muscle group and all of a sudden, you know, you've got these really toned arms, but your legs can't even take you up the stairs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but I, I love sort of taking it all in. And you described the, the Chicago uh, schools that you took in, but then you look beyond and there's such a bigger world or so many other things that you can draw from that inform the whole of what you can do. And if you just stay within one place that you don't know what you're missing, that really may be exactly what will take you to another level. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, I've always been drawn to festivals. I love travel. I love, I love experiencing places through the, the people there versus the, the things mm -hmm. there. And mm -hmm. Uh, and I just learned so much. And I grew up as an exchange student, like with exchange mm. students in my house all the time. Like the whole time you were an exchange yeah. student. We the had, I, just like, yeah. get rid of her. Get yeah, rid exactly. of Stacey. Oh, where can we send her next? Uh, I went two places, but my siblings all went places. And my mom kind of led the, the American Field Service, the AFS group. So it was on oh. my mind. And um, And then we had people from other places at our house all the time. So mm -hmm. I love it. I love bigger perspective. And even five years into Curious, when, you know, we just did long form for the first five years. We didn't do any short form. Okay. And our space is big. And so it's, it's hard to, like, it has to be a high caliber of long form to fill that space. And so we'd have good shows and people were excited, but also, you know, starting with a big space is like you have 20 people come and they have a great time, but they they wonder why there's not more people there. And then they're like, we're going to tell people, but then they don't, which is different right. than when they come see a show with 150 other people. Then they just talk about it, not because they want to help you, but because they right. had such an amazing time. There's such amazing energy. So, you know, we were not making ends meet. And right at that time, Kevin Galise and, and Amber Nash invited me. I was traveling a lot to Atlanta for my job. And everywhere I would travel, I would hire an improviser to work with us because we used improv in my oh, okay. branding work. Okay. Great. 
So I also met, you know, not That's just through nice festivals. Way to network. It was mm-hmm. awesome. It was just mm-hmm. so fun. And I would always, you know, just be like, hey, who knows somebody in Cincinnati? Who knows somebody mm-hmm. in Atlanta? So Amber wasn't even on Archer yet. And so I hired her the first two times and then she was busy with Archer. And so then I hired other people from dad's garage and, you know, and then I would stay and go to dad's garage shows and they Mm -hmm. have the whole theater sports influence, Mm -hmm. which is different than the comedy sports approach. And then they invited us to their tournament. And again, I wasn't doing any short form. I had done some at comedy sports, you know, with Pat from time to time, but I didn't have a large selection of games Games at my disposal, uh, like not even enough to have that critical mass of like, Oh, this is like that game, but right. Right. Like I was, everything was still new. You didn't have a a bag of handles. No, (laughs) no. So they invited us to participate. They flew us out and like, even, and they knew we only did long form and they invited us. And I brought my two, you know, most loyal performers who had gone through our training center and were in all of our shows and they were scared to death because <laughs> they had done zero short form. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we're, we're just trying to figure it out and it's our first time and we just got whooped like so bad. <laughs> and, uh, because oh, it's, it's a tournament, like a competitive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we just were not. You were you were the 16 seed. <laughs> exactly. And delivering as expected. Right. Uh, the one Sorry, thing Sunny Brook. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing we did that was great was in the final game, we were like, let's just do uh in each, you know, because you get like three games, we're like, we'll do it like a herald. We'll bring back the same characters in okay. each. And then everyone was like, we've never seen anyone do it like that before. And it was so cool. And like, we still lost, but at least we had like right. contributed artistically to something. <laughs> but that was when we got to see Rapid Fire. We got to see Dad's Garage. We got to see Sat Comedy Lab. And mm-hmm. we got to see people doing short form without the structure of comedy sports with sometimes the challenge being an open scene. Right. And with this emphasis on story, which obviously was my whole draw to improv in the first place, but I got to see story embodied in short form. And that's when I came back and we started doing short form at Curious. And that's when Curious started to be able to support itself. And and everyone at the beginning, they were reluctant. We had some people mm-hmm. break off and found another theater because they just did not want to do short form, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Everyone should do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But it was a big change. And yeah. and then, you know, the people who stuck with it a couple years later, we were doing a long form Christmas show and people who had been super reluctant to do the short form leaned over and they're like, I kind of miss doing showdown. I was like, me too. Because, <laughs> you know, we still had that same connection with each other, the same collaboration, the same fun, but like the audience could understand it more easily and the the frequency of the laughs and the power of the laughs. Right. They, didn't, they didn't feel pandering. They didn't feel yeah. dirty. They didn't feel gimmicky. Yep. It felt great. So that was ex- exactly what you were talking about in terms of like what you – Chicago would not have exposed me to John Stone's, you know, no. legacy of theater sports. And, um, oh, Vancouver Theater Sports was another place that we traveled to and just started really, yeah. and we started going there regularly. And 
We yeah. became better at compete. We won one time at Vancouver <laughs> Theater Sports, and we stole the trophy and brought it back to Portland. <laughs> there <you go. laughs> so there's there's a there's a number of different uh, avenues in this choose your own adventure book, or at least I guess I'm choosing it uh, here. But I would like to go back to the you know taking in all of these different approaches that you took in, and now. Stacy, the cross trainer, develops mm-hmm. a curriculum, not necessarily just you, but, you know, you bring that to your curriculum. Is it all of those styles? Is it heavier towards one? Uh, what? How would you describe the Curious Comedy curriculum and, and philosophy of improv? That's an awesome question. You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm, we're working on our curriculum again, obviously through the DEI lens, and just mm-hmm. Kristen and I collaborating. And you know, Kristen, I, you know, not only have I done sketch and stand up in addition to all these improvs, now Kristen's bringing clown training and mm. traditional actor training. So, uh, in addition to all of her improv experience and um, as well, so uh, there's something common to me in all of it, which is storytelling. And it's understanding the principles of storytelling, no matter what medium you are telling your story, you need to understand characterization. You know, what's the physical presentation of the character? How do they move? How do they talk? Mm -hmm. In animation, there's a saying that if you nail the walk, you nail the character. Hmm. Um, So what do they, what do they look like? Yeah. Yeah. And if you're designing a character and say they lie a lot, right, maybe they have a big nose, um, like a Pinocchio, you know, so how do you, or if somebody's snobby and they turn their nose up to people, maybe you make them mm-hmm. have like a little curved up nose. So even, you know, animation storytelling, and this is what I did for my corporate work as well as right, right. marketing people storytelling. So what I love about improv is that these exercises that we do and these games that we do are all building storytelling muscles. Okay. And when we when I teach corporate people, it's like they think storytelling is a soft skill and it's not. It's a it's a craft. There is a science to it. It's you know, we a lot of us are natural storytellings and maybe don't know how to articulate those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but do we understand this character uh, and what they look like, what they want, what they mm-hmm. most want to feel, what's driving them, what's motivating them? Uh, who do they choose to relate to and how do they relate to those people? Mm-hmm. Is is my objective more important to me than yours? Do I try mm-hmm. to support yours over mine or do I try to make a win-win situation or do I try to sabotage both of us, right? Those are all the <laughs> different ways people operate in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and who, right? The difference between the ballerina who only hangs around with ballerinas or the ballerina who hangs out with a motorcycle gang, mm-hmm. right? We, we make assumptions based on who they choose to hang out with and then how do they relate to them is the one who relates to the motorcycle gang is she trying to be a member or is she trying to evangelize them mm-hmm. to join the church of christ right Those, mm-hmm. so who do we relate to how do we relate to them and then our environment where where do we operate where do we choose to be how do we interact what's our status to not only other people but what's our status to environments like woody allen rip woody allen as a good human being but 
his like scene with him getting blown by a blow dryer against a wall <laughs> like he's low status to a hair dryer <laughs> uh so what what's the environment what how do we relate to them so we sort of teach those core elements of storytelling and building a character and then also the arc of a story mm -hmm. what's the premise what's a turning point where do we heighten it when do mm -hmm. we reach the point, the midpoint where we've heightened it as much as we can? And then what's the next turning point and how does it resolve? Like those are all fractals. That's in a short form game. Yep. That's yep. in a scene in a film. That's also in the whole film. Yes. Um, so once you understand sort of the mechanics and the structure of the elements, then you practice just like when you're learning how to drive, you have to learn how to look in your rear view mirror and ahead and the side mirror and operate the wheel and operate the pedals. Mm -hmm. And then you add the radio when mm -hmm. you're confident enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you can get fancy with the arc. I mean, I, another thing I love about Bass Probs, they taught me the, the beauty of detours or rest stops, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're driving down this road of your story, but then you can break off, do mm -hmm. a flourish and then come back to it. All right, get your nutter butters and get back on the road. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how, you know, we can get fancy, but first you need to learn these building blocks. So that's that's the curriculum. And then hopefully we teach it in the context of scene work, yeah, which can apply to long form and short form. And then we're, we're really trying to figure out our structure in terms of like, I love having like a long form based class that ends in a short form game. It's such a nice, fun way uh, mm. to end. A even if you're getting in your head, especially mm -hmm. when you're intermediate and you're like, mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. time I try to use my right arm, my left arm f screws up. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, ending in a game that's just fun and silly and exercises that same muscle. So people start connecting. Right. Cause that was what was great about going to comedy sports in Chicago after I'd been improvising for a while, I was like, oh, each of these games is just exercising a muscle that I use in long form. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the story front, I feel like there's, in whatever Chicago style is, kind of a push away from story as a central aspect of it. You may disagree with that, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I'm thinking... But the discussion that you just uh, had on story as part of your curriculum and what you teach and all that kind of stuff, there's lots of different ways you could also describe a lot of those things. You know, it may be a little different sense of the arc of the story that if you don't have a common sensibility as an ensemble may cause some disconnects. I'm kind of trying to ask you about that. So. Totally. Absolutely. Well, and this is another thing that we've been talking about currently uh, in our analysis is like this tradition of house teams is really backwards. Mm -hmm. When you think about it in traditional theater, the artistic director builds a season mm -hmm. and then you hire the directors and the directors makes the cast. Yeah. And the cast comes into it attracted to the work mm -hmm. they know that they're going to do the, an experimental interactive immersive piece of theater or oklahoma mm -hmm. right and, and you're drawing to you the people who all share that same sensibility and in teams the way we've been doing it, it's like oh my gosh we're just trying to match make all these people that we think will play well together mm -hmm. and we get a coach for them 
and then they try to figure out what they want to do even if yeah. like you say they all have massively different right. sensibilities which is a bizarre way to operate and ends up mm -hmm. being very personality based mm -hmm. and then we end up doing a lot of managing of personalities mm -hmm. uh, instead of focusing on the work which is my favorite way to work right mm -hmm. it's like our personalities are each the more different we are if we're still attracted to the same work then the better it is as long as the work has the room for those different sensibilities because there may be certain structures that just don't fit no first if, time right totally but if we were attracted to it because we all have a passion for it then the more different we are kind of the better that we're, but we're going to be united by this thing right. but if the work isn't uniting everybody yes what is right and right. that's where i think we've been burning out a bit and 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 mm -hmm. i think we have a super healthy community actually like mm -hmm. very low drama community 99 percent mm -hmm. of the time and and then things crop up and we confront them i'm not a, i'm from the east coast i'm not afraid of digging in and like working through it and a happy healthy community comes from being willing to have hard conversations and mm -hmm. sorting things out but it also helps to have a unifying perspective on the work that you're doing and when i talk about story i want to be clear it's not always straight narrative right right and the better you have an understanding of the structure of story the more you could deliver something pretty abstract that still feels satisfying to you in the audience okay so what what might be some like big rocks for how you would teach story i think you need a beginning a middle and an end you need tightening <laughs> You know, and, and you need tension and you yeah. need a release of tension. Okay. So everyone hates, you know, the Herald and yet everyone loves the Herald. Like everyone's obsessed with the Herald and then, and then you try to teach it and people are like, I hate it. And I was lucky <laughs> enough to learn it from Michael Gelman mm -hmm. versus learning it from IO first. Um, mm -hmm. And definitely not from UCB first which are all valid ways of teaching it, but they're increasingly more advanced. So to me, a herald teaches you beginning, middle, mm -hmm. end, and dynamics. So your first round of scenes, you're establishing your, your premise, your foundation. Mm -hmm. Your game is a burst of energy. Then your second beat is your second act. Mm-hmm and then you have another game and then you have your resolution mm -hmm. and if it's a really beginning herald it's it's a time jump same exact characters in first beat second beat and third beat mm -hmm. and it'll most likely be one scene broken up into three parts because the beginners will be floundering in that first scene to figure out what their scene's even about mm -hmm. then they have the game to kind of think about right then the other people's scenes they're like wait what was this about what's interesting about it and then you have the game it's kind of a reset and then you see them again in the second beat and then they hopefully have figured out what the heart of their scene was and then they heighten it in that yeah. second beat then we see this and then they resolve it in the end an advanced player is having an entire scene in that first beat mm -hmm. and then we don't even need to see those same characters necessarily in the second beat and mm -hmm. you can start thematically building the tension um, or expanding the world beyond those first two characters. So a lot of people start trying to teach it at this like abstract, thematic, advanced level while people are still just trying to understand what 
A, B, and C are, and game yeah. one and game two are. Do you, uh, I don't know if you play this game, we could call it scene cube or pan left, pan right. Do you use that at all as a sort of a fast and furious herald <laughs> teaching <Training>. tool? <laughs> It, I think it's it would work. I haven't usually. I can teach a herald in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> I usually just do the scene work with time jumps yeah. Yeah. at the top. Right. Yeah. You see scene one, two, three. Then we see scene one, two, and three forward or back in time, heightening whatever's going on. And right. then and and then we do scenes where you, you're not allowed to be in the scene with the same person you just were. So now we see mm -hmm. someone from scene one with scene scene three and da 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 da, and then they resolve each other's uh, and issues yeah. and that's it and then okay. we do i i do it very structured and this is how i learned it from gelman too is like yeah. the opening is just uh quick monologues based mm -hmm. on the suggestion and the games are town hall uh and like some other game that's fun and easy to teach like i am a pencil you know like i'm a pencil mm -hmm. I write mm -hmm. my th I write people's thoughts down and someone's like, mm -hmm. I'm the tip of the pencil. I'm the eraser of the pencil. I'm the, you know, mm -hmm. and then it's right. just, just, just a brain fun game. Um, yeah. And then, and then that's it. And now, you know, the Herald, you don't know how to do the Herald, like a UCB <laughs> team on a Thursday night. Right? right. And I say specifically a weeknight because they do less complicated Heralds when they had audiences, as far as I understood it, you know, like more accessible and they got more advanced and complicated during the week. Cause it was for the other improvisers more. You mentioned the, the short form that you do has a story sensibility baked into it. What, what would be different about a curious comedy short form than some others? Well, it was very much inspired by SAC comedy lab, Mike Carr and Chris Dinger where their philosophy is story over game. Mm -hmm. And also I took a workshop, with Paul Sills way okay. long ago. And it was hilarious. Where did you do that? Uh, here in Portland, Adrian okay. Flagg was doing a specific, I can't remember, but a specific, and you know, it was directed from the outside and uh, she had a relationship with Paul Sills. And so she brought him out and it was, it was interesting because it was a workshop with a lot of teachers who wanted not really mm -hmm, like performance mm -hmm. improvisers. So it's a different feel. And the, a, a part of the different feel was that everyone wanted to do it exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul, like, so he taught us the game. Like we did, we're doing scenes. Then he's like, okay, now let's do this game. And it was like an environment game where I go in and I establish a cash register and then you come in and use the cash register and then you establish a wall of candy right. and then the next person, the next person. And everyone like, there was no scene. Everyone came in and was very diligently doing the assignment. Right. I am touching the register and I am touching the candy. And there was like no joy, no connection, yeah. no scene. Yeah. And, yeah. and in his infamous style, he like stopped and yelled at everybody and made somebody cry, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but what he was upset about was like, why would you ever do the game and not have a scene? <laughs> you know, and so that to me is like. I love I, that you get punished for not being joyful enough. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. And like, and what was worse was everyone was like, I technically did exactly what you asked me to do. (laughs) But he didn't establish that. Yes. But more important than this is that you maintain a scene, a watchable, (laughs) interesting scene. And I think that's not always going to see this. Curious, we're not perfect, but our goal is to not worry about the rules of the game over the joy and the connection to Mm -hmm. to one another and to the to the scene ultimately there should be a scene and i think you'll see a lot more vulnerability in our performers than you might in some jokier short form environments yeah i think there certainly is a trend away from jokey towards vulnerability for a lot of reasons which is probably a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the quick version is I think that the rise of UCB was so big and sudden and they really focus on wit and game, Mm -hmm. which again, to me is just like the tiniest slice and which is nice to focus on that one slice and be really good at it. So this is not to criticize why you know them or this is why they were so successful is that they really focused they hyper focused on something until people were really good at it and it's a skill that's really great for being in a writer's room in hollywood there was also a focus on being funny for sure which again is also if you're on a write for a tv show exactly uh knowing how to be funny and heighten the game they're really good at that i think they took that piece of io and like amplified it by a million but it, it people who who just embraced ucb hard were missing all the other stuff and so i i feel like the pendulum is swinging back to a little bit more chicago style like relationship based environment based work it all comes back to the you know whatever the stew is <laughs> that we're making an improv right because that the game is a skill it's, or it's a toy that you can you can play with. And if you have a grounded scene, which, which UCB would say you need to have a grounded scene too, you know, all those I things. No, I don't know that they would. Well, base I reality fight with Matt Besser. <laughs> okay. Well, I think, I think you just a big fight with Matt Besser, I think is what you get. When oh, you're for with sure. Matt Besser, right? hundred percent. He even like, <laughs> he sent a, somebody tweeted during his workshop in a workshop with at Matt Besser, they actually tweeted at him, uh, alternating between moments of sheer brilliance and blank stares out the window, which was pretty funny tweet. Uh, And it was like a $20 masterclass. And two weeks later, we got in the mail a handwritten envelope made out to that person, Care of Curious Comedy, from Matt Besser with a $20 bill in it, refunding him his money. Just like to do the Dell Close thing. Is yeah. That what's going uh-huh. yeah. on? Yeah. Like, you don't like my class? Fine. Here's your $20 back. It was so uh-huh. funny. But uh-huh. in the time I picked him up from the hotel to bring him to the workshop, he's like, What do you teach? What do you teach? What am I, what am I coming into? You know, tell me what's going on. What's going on? And I was talking about what I see is the difference between great game and relationship. Yeah. And he does not see a difference. Yeah. He's like, What is that? Okay. That's the same thing. That's the same thing. It's like, I don't think so. Yeah. To huh. me, like you have a relationship gets expressed through a game. But mm-hmm. if you're doing like a 50 minute show, which Matt Besser would say, why would you ever do one scene for 50 minutes? Which he did say to me, you you have that relationship evolving. and You have multiple games to show the relationship. Right. 
He said, why would you do 50? Because you might as well go for 60 at that point. Was that his point? <laughs> no, his point was it should, no, no scene I... should be. Yeah, no scene should be longer than like two minutes. And then he was like really def- he was writing his book. He was finishing his book. So he had Mick Napier's book and he kept opening, flipping mm. through Mick's book and then arguing with things in Mick's book. <laughs> and I kept saying and then I was sort of defending what my interpretation of Mick's. I was like, well, I think that that's intended at a beginning improviser. Or I think yeah. that I interpreted that differently. It was so awful but huh. he uh you know was very defensive about premise based improv on one yeah. hand he kept saying people think it's cheating it's not cheating it's fine it's fine it's just organic it's bullshit it's harder why would you do it and then he'd be like you know he would defend that it was easier but then also defend like that why do people say it's easier yeah <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah than trying yeah. to come out with nothing and they're both valid i love premise based and i love organic scene work like and sometimes you don't have a premise and you're out there and you better figure it out organically right that's right (laughs) you need both that's right sometimes even when you're doing an armando which is you know the ass cat their signature performance sometimes the story only has one premise in it or Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah um i want to at least cover one more thing with you stacy you've just got so much thoughtfulness that I, I could see us being here for another six hours, which wouldn't be fair. <laughs> I just love talking to you, though, too. I love oh, you. that's nice of you to say. Uh, but you and I had a conversation a fair amount of time back that dealt with the sort of the, the when there's like a single person pushing things forward. Like when you started Curious Comedy, you had to, I think, make sure that certain things happened because if they, if you didn't do it, they weren't going to happen. And that there's a lot of theaters or companies or troops that have that personality who ends up being the one to at least drive things forward for a while. I don't know if you remember this conversation or if, if you're, if you're resonating with this topic at all, but I'd like to at least somehow figure out how to how to visit on that topic because there is a tension between finding a way to get a an improv community theater troupe off the ground that will never be uh, maybe I shouldn't say never but is very difficult to make self sustaining out of the gate. And at the same time, trying to have as much of other input and participation as possible. And there's a tension there. And I kind of wanted to sort of sit in this topic for a while with you, because I think you've probably got some thoughts on it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember the specific. I remember we had a conversation. I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure this all sounds like a conversation, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So for me, like, you know, I have been entrepreneurial and even, even when I worked for animation studio, I was, you know, the administrative assistant to the founder Mm -hmm. and founder syndrome is, is real. And Mm -hmm. I have been aware of it long before I was a founder. And mm-hmm. and for those who don't know what founder syndrome is, I think it's it's when the founder of an organization starts holding that organization back mm-hmm. uh, unintentionally 
because mm-hmm. there's a different skill set between, I think we talked about this. There's a different skill set between someone who starts a thing mm-hmm. and someone who maintains a thing. Yeah, there's that. And the other thing I might describe, well, it's, it's different than founder syndrome, but I think there's also an element that the flaws in the foundation are really hard to remove without a lot of work and intentionality. When I was a brand story consultant, you know, we have worked with people, with com- companies and brands that have, that were a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. And, and, and maybe we talked about this part too. And like the, the personality of the founder is a hundred percent embedded in any yeah. organization, no matter what it is right. really hard to get rid of that. And yeah. it's weird. It, it must be, I'm sure what it's like to be a parent. I'm not a parent, but when you look at your kids and you see characteristics of yourself reflected back at you in another person, same. Well, I have four kids. Their flaws are theirs. They're it's them. <laughs> it is completely them. <laughs> we did what we could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure nothing about you has no. been passed down Mm-mm. to them. No, well, there's there are some good things, but uh. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't believe you have four kids. That's a lot of. Kids. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, same thing with an organization. Um, yeah, it, you can really kind of see, and and even when we were starting the theater, I was just like, wow, like every strength I've ever had, every skill that I've ever learned in any random place from from, that's why I think about Mm -hmm. Saturday market or being a realtor, like any lesson I've ever learned has come into play here. And Mm -hmm. also every weakness I've ever had gets a a huge spotlight on it. And and you really have to be able to manage your ego. And my sister is an amazing parent in that way where I have watched her evolve as a person as she's wanted to be a better person for her kids and Mm -hmm. and she knows that she has to model that not just say it and i feel like yeah and and how old are her kids her kids now are uh gosh 24 they just graduate one graduated college yeah Yeah. they are now and they're they're just great they're great human beings great empathy and very sweet and compassionate and hilarious and so yeah like it's it's always the best and the worst right <laughs> when i see see my reflection in the organization but i also i think i was telling you about um who was it johnson and johnson we worked with johnson and johnson and i expected okay. you know you think of baby shampoo i thought they'd be kind of nurturing mm-hmm. and soft and maternal mm-hmm. But they're actually founded by a war medic. Okay. All right. And yeah, we haven't talked about this. So yeah. I don't know and this their yet. culture is incredibly militaristic, like very military oh. structure. And and it and they're like, oh, it's like Western medicine versus like a nurturing mom. Right. And when you yeah. look at their bottles and stuff, you see how like then you start, oh, they are. They're they're very plain. They're very functional. Yeah. yeah. And you can look at no more tears. It's like, oh, no more tears. Or you can be like, no more tears. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> Keep your kids quiet. <laughs> exactly. And there's, they still, there's like, bourbon in the bottle, too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, 100 years after they're founded, they still attract people with a military background. And right. they, they still have kind of that, that tough doctor mm-hmm. uh, kind of feel. So. Anyway, so I'm aware of that. What to do about that? I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, like I, yeah. I just, 
I, I really love organizations like Dad's Garage and like Rapid Fire that have had a succession of leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Rapid Fire's list of artistic directors is ridiculous. Like Kevin Galise, Amy Shostak, Jacob Bannigan. Like, so you have created, first of all, opportunity for those mm-hmm. people to mm-hmm. evolve as, as performers and leaders. And also each of those people brought and embedded some of their own DNA in that organization. I've seen in some uh, like multi-generational like business owning families or things like that, there's this sort of move from mine to ours that uh, has a, a sense of stewardship as opposed to ownership. Mm. Um, and I think if if you think about like a founder's syndrome, some of it could also be trying to put too much of oneself or the success of the organization is too much of a, I don't know, validation of who they are. Yeah. Yeah, It's part of your identity. Yeah. And once you do that, it's, it's not, it's not going to be inclusive because somehow it's too much about you. That's right. For me, I, because I had this free, I didn't get paid by Curious the first seven years I was doing my marketing job. So there'd be a week, a month that I was gone. Mm-hmm. And when I was gone, I was facilitating. I was on my feet. You know, I right. was brainstorming our presentation and then in a presentation. So it wasn't even like I could work from afar. I had mm-hmm. to entrust someone else to be in charge mm-hmm. during that time. And so I very much. That probably helped, right? So much. And, and mm-hmm. like, I can't even believe the luck I had of the people that, ended up being those early, especially the early days, like mm-hmm. such incredibly talented people who were willing to work for what I had was able to pay, like mm-hmm. because one had just moved from New York and her husband was working as a organ transplant administrator at the hospital and she just got to town and just wanted to get involved, you know, and so she worked with us for a year and then she got her dream job and we cried and celebrated and and now mm-hmm. she's still mm-hmm. crushing it at that. And mm-hmm. uh, another person who was moving back with her family, she was from here originally, she was working in the Pasadena Playhouse. And then they wanted to move back to Portland. So it was an opportunity for her and her mm-hmm. family to come back with a job. And Pasadena Playhouse, I think, had, had you know, closed. So, you know, it was a timing thing that we just drew. And now she's doing her dream job. And she's, you know, so uh, Rebecca Lingefelter is the one who now teaches at Lewis and Clark. And she runs the Portland Experimental Theater Ensemble mm-hmm. as part mm-hmm. of the group that runs that. And then Beth was you know, a Shakespeare person at heart. And she lived out of, you know, closer to Hillsboro, which is one of our suburbs. And then she ended up running Bag and Baggage, which is the Shakespeare theater out in Hillsboro. So mm. in a way, we've been able to be a, a transitional place for administrators as much as we have for performers, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, their part, they are embedded in this organization as much as I am. Like mm-hmm. there, like we do celebrations at the end of every staff meeting where you say something you're excited about or grateful for. And then we all do, 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 we all do, 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 and it's silly <laughs> and ridiculous. And that's a hundred percent Rebecca. Um, <laughs> so everywhere I turn, I still see them. Mm-hmm. And that's because I had to. Yeah. And, and, and another thing that makes it hard for an improv theater is like, it did take me 10 years to make a living wage at working there 
which is about the time I think someone should work at a place. <laughs> so it's like, ah, finally, like making this a yeah. living. And now I probably should give it to somebody else. So <laughs> that's, that's what I'm working on. I'm working on putting the systems in place that will keep it stable enough to not need me to be the, 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 I don't know, the, the foundation anymore. So during that, those first 10 years, you were working other jobs to yeah, make first, ends meet or? The first yeah. seven years, Curious didn't pay me at all. Mm -hmm. And then as we had money come in to create jobs, I started hiring people to do the things that I didn't want to do mm -hmm. or wasn't as good, good at. at. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the bar was the first major position. Um, okay. and, and, and again, like that was run by Greg Shasi, who, who moved up to Bellingham a couple years ago and has worked at upfront theater, like, but he was doing that job for eight years. So, and then, mm -hmm. and the person who's operating it now had worked with him directly and has taken over. And so the bar is very much his culture. I would say he ran that as his own business within our business. Mm -hmm. So, so that's Greg and like, mm -hmm. and, and we don't really have a five-year strategy currently because we finished it. Like the, we jumped way ahead and finished that vision. So I'm hoping as we create the next one, mm -hmm. it'll be a vision that we've all made together and not just mm -hmm. mine that I'm yeah. pushing into the world, but that everyone will have a sense of, of ownership and participation in the creation and uh, execution of that yeah. or implementation. Execution sounds like you're going to kill it. But the implementation <laughs> of that strategy. Yeah. Uh, if someone is planning to start a theater <laughs> today, <laughs> what, what, what would be the things that you would? Uh, you, you, you got I'm a couple a terrible, minutes to share. I'm a terrible person to ask that question. Why is I'm, that? I'm usually very discouraging, on, oh, okay. honestly. And, and I don't mean to be. Okay. Uh, but I. What wanted... makes you discouraging about it? It's Just really it's hard. hard. It's really yeah. hard. And I think everyone that I've talked to is focused on the artistic side mm -hmm. and the business side is pretty brutal. So mm -hmm. I will talk about that if anyone wants to. <laughs> but you got to be like you got to be looking for a realistic picture to make your plan mm -hmm. not like kind of just like go for your dream i'm not that i'm like gonna yeah. be like okay here's all the shit side of it right. so if you right. want that i'm the person to come to but i would say you know i would probably encourage someone to open a dual business with a theater on one side and a bar on the other whether it's front and back or left mm -hmm. and right so that you have a business that actually would make money. <laughs> that makes money all the hours that the theater doesn't. I mean, that's yeah. just the the fact is when you don't, when I moved here from Chicago, my business plan was like, well, Monday night we'll have these two shows and Tuesday night we'll have these two shows. Like Portland doesn't do that. Portland right. barely comes to 930 on a Saturday. Right. So just really understanding your market and what it costs to operate a space. I would even encourage somebody to start with the company, start with your classes, start with renting space. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating to rent space. You end up having to do improv mm -hmm. on other people's sets and like all of a sudden they built some space 
set that's on a hard angle and everybody's falling over and, <laughs> or boxes that are drilled into the middle of the floor. Like we've dealt with all of that, but if you can I love find... the space set, <laughs> I've, they're all from real history of trying to rent spaces. I mean, we've done it in movie theaters with just like a portable stage set up front, but build your community first, you know, with your classes and your ensemble. Mm -hmm. And get that in order so that you have that support when you try to acquire a space. And try to own a space if you can. If you can. Because yeah. everyone I know at year eight is like booted. They've helped transform the the community in the immediate vicinity. Yeah. And then the prices get hiked when the lease goes to renew. If you are a part of a community and you have that initial founder and leader, uh, what were the kind of things people would do to best support and encourage you? Hmm. So, so if somebody's in a, if I think just, uh, express gratitude when you feel it, mm -hmm. because you know, in, I, I don't know, have you, in, in your marriage, you know, like, my therapist talks about in a real, any relationship, right? It takes 10 good things to compensate for one bad thing that somebody says to you. Okay. So if your partner is critical, you know, and you're trying to talk about something that eventually you're going to need to talk about, just like, yeah. you know, with your socks everywhere is driving me a little bit crazy. And that's going to make you feel a little bad, even if you, your intentions are good. That's going to take 10 other positive things. But I love this about you and that about you and this about you and that about you. And they don't all have to come at That's once. That's only seven. I need yeah. three more. <laughs> and again, it doesn't have to come at once. But like, you know, every day you should be trying to say good things to your partner. And I think it's important to realize as a leader that we are fielding everybody's criticisms all day, every day. And I want to, I'm super solicitous of feedback right. because that is how we make ourselves better. Right. Um, but if, if people aren't also communicating the, the good sides, it's yeah. exhausting. So getting back to this short little conversation, there is a kind of a weight that goes along with pushing this thing off the ground and being entrepreneurial, I guess if that's your mindset that gives you a little bit more energy to keep pushing than others might have, just that's just how you're wired. But the criticisms can sometimes be deflating mm -hmm. at the wrong time. Oh, for sure. Well, at the same time, like you said, you want to be open and pliable and ready to learn and open to those things. So and I also had to be driven by the fact that, you know, comedy was not supportive of women. Right. So I, I really had to build my own playground to get to play in it. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you've shared some things and and um, and I've heard you say some of the things like your experience at Second City in terms of directing even if those statements or, or um, attitudes weren't as directly expressed, if the net result is the same, they might as well have said them. Mm -hmm. But hopefully those, those opportunities are, are there in some ways, regardless of who builds them. I, that, to, to me, there seems like there is an element of what I hear as sort of a common value 
that the improv community seems to be expressing about having the stage open fully, but how you do that will be some people creating their own playgrounds mm-hmm. and also changing the accessibility of the existing playgrounds. That's right. And in many ways, I feel like it's been kind of easy, um, relatively speaking, to make that happen online. I don't think it's it's going to be as easy in person unless people are holding tight and firm to those values and, and expressing them and sharing them and repeating them and living them out, as you said mm-hmm. earlier in our time together. Mm-hmm. Well, and you look at huge or you look at dads, and I think they are the, the leaders in diversity in the improv world right now. And, you know, they had leadership. They had John Gebretatios and mm-hmm. John Carr. And there's just, you can't beat, it's just kind of the theme of this conversation. Like you can say it, but if it, but you have to transform who you are and you have to model what you're saying. Right. It, it's hard. It's easier online because we're in Portland. And, you know, I think there are five black improvisers and I don't know if any of them want to be an administrator. And so where, you know, how do we do that? Whereas online we can, we can get black teachers and raise their visibility, you know, mm-hmm. set that model, support them. Mm-hmm. So things that we're looking at doing, right, adding to our staff, having some residencies. Yeah. And we just got to be creative and we got to come up with the money to make those things happen. Yeah. It's, you know, improv is in some ways it has a feel of a luxury good, which I think can create some barriers that are not understood. I mean, when you talk about the classes that it would cost 2000 bucks to go through a series of classes. At each place. You know, I spent $6,000 when I was in Chicago on classes. Right, right. Plus festivals that I didn't get paid for, right, that I traveled to. and Yeah. I mean, there's it's all done dumb. <laughs> It's so, it, it is. I mean, to me, it's more uh, when you're talking about a non major city like New York, LA, or Chicago, right? Like, yeah. it's more like scuba diving than okay. it is like uh, being an accountant. Like, <laughs> it's not <laughs> oh, a okay, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, being an accountant, you expect to go to work and get paid and, and do whatever, but here it's it's a hobby and it's actually a cheaper hobby because at least you know, scuba diving, you gotta pay for the classes plus the gear plus the boat, right? Like, mm-hmm. improv is actually one of the, the cheaper hobbies that, that you can have. Yeah, you just gotta borrow a chair. That's right, <laughs> that's right. And you can do it, but you can even do it in the park standing up if you really yes, want you can. to. Our so, show today, we were just standing up, nothing yeah. on the stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, in a lot of ways, it is uh, more accessible than other. Uh, yeah, it should be. It It's, it's kind of like, you know, like soccer or yeah. football in many ways is one of the most accessible deals because all you need is a a ball or something that will act like a ball. Yeah. Yet you look at in the U S in particular, and I'm sure it's this way in other places who plays, who plays soccer or football here in the U S it is, it is the, the rich suburban kids for the most part 
who right. do that because they've got to go through this club system and all this kind of stuff. That's and right. hockey. I mean, that's at least what it looks like to me. So <laughs> it is. And that's, I, yeah, there's so many unconscious biases and so much um, cost inaccessibility mm-hmm. to these things and, and even to free time. And I think yeah. a lot of times when we talk about improv in general, we conflate two areas of it. One is the professional path. And one is the intramural sport. Yeah. I pay my 25 bucks. I don't know. I've never played intramural soccer, but like, you know, Uh I play soccer with my friends every Tuesday night and we all pitch in to be part of the league and that payment gets somebody to organize the space and the teams and the coaches. Right. Right. Like that's what that is. You pay into a system to do the admin work so you can just go play. Yeah. And then, but if you're talking about making a professional path, asking people to pay is like the managers or whatever who used to charge people for casting workshops or whatever, right? They're abusing that power that they have to, to make money. And so it's hard because and in, in, in a place like Chicago, you have both of those things, mm-hmm. but it weighs more heavily on the professional path when you know that SNL is promising to come shop for talent every year Mm -hmm. right and then here you're in la and here's your opportunity to get some exposure or yeah you're in new york or whatever yeah daily show scouts coming to the ucb shows right like so it's they're different things and how do we how do we tend to those so one of the things we did do by the way is we eliminated house team fees for uh you did okay so we had no fees for our main stage performers because they were doing shows that were people were paying for and the house teams were not covering those expenses, but we just, by eliminating that number of things, now we can provide it all for free to everybody, especially because our younger teams and greener teams were the more diverse teams. Mm-hmm. Then you end up with the less diverse people not paying and the up and coming more diverse people paying. We're just like, this feels wrong. <laughs> like this just mm-hmm. feels bad. We want mm-hmm. to encourage these people, these people, these younger, more diverse people are doing a lot of emotional labor uh, in 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 trailblazing. So mm-hmm. we did eliminate that. But the, uh, not, I don't want to stir the pot here, but the house teams are not getting paid no, for not the currently. performance. But I do think that actually, now that we're rehearsing for the showdown teams, and now instead of having four different shows on Thursdays that mm-hmm. aren't the most viable night, everyone's rehearsing on Thursdays to do shows on Friday and Saturday, and they're going to do the same show. And we're going to put all of our support behind that, that I think that those shows as they start to get attended Mm -hmm. will start to support themselves and allow us to pay. And then that will allow us to pay on the one show that makes money that is Mm -hmm. carrying everything else. Mm -hmm. So if each thing becomes viable, then our one show that does have enough money to pay for its, cast but can't Mm -hmm. because it's paying for all these community shows that we do so that's why if we do less paying has been the goal i mean that was a big part of what we've been trying to work toward so if this the smaller space shows and the community shows can hold their own then we'll be able to to pay are they the same shows in a general sense that you had before or are you modifying them to be more attractive to the general public? (laughs) 
We are. Showdown is the same. Right. Because I was working for audiences coming yes. in, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. More and more and more. Better than ever when the pandemic hit. Like 40% mm-hmm. growth. Like mm-hmm. really getting to the point where we could breathe. But then we have the second space where everyone was getting to kind of do the more artistic stuff. And the way we had it was each team was doing their own format mm-hmm. and their own show. And so we really couldn't market them as well. Mm-hmm. So it, so what we're going to do is we're going to artistic direct more, which is okay. more exciting and more fun to me. It's kind of like the old days. Mm-hmm. It'll have a rotation of shows that'll have runs. Everyone will rehearse for those shows. The house and main stage teams will both like have complimentary. Like if it's a film theme, like they'll have formats that follow that theme. It'll mm-hmm. have a name and a way to talk about it. That's like a show and not just yep. like we're doing yep. the deconstruction and audience like, what is that? Well, we take <laughs> yeah. two people and then we experiment with, you know, we explore their relationship by jumping. You know, it's already too long to yes. for anyone to come to. But <laughs> if we if we say, I, you know, this is a terrible name, but I'm just brainstorming. If we're like the spine of a relation, your love spine. We explore what love means over time, you know, whatever. Just some ass name that someone can be like, oh, this is about love and relationships, right? And they get it. It doesn't have to even be a different format necessarily. It has to just be talked about in a way and have images that are attractive and look professional Mm -hmm. and have some some time and money behind it and the relationship with the press and a press release that goes out. And like, Mm -hmm. so we weren't able to do that for the team. Mm -hmm. They were, it was a lot on them to make their shows happen just to cover the costs of their shows happening. Right. Right. So now we're going to do the programming the same way we did with showdown. But instead, I, I hope that instead of just having one thing we do forever, that this space will be where we can, do more experimental stuff and be a little more artistic in our use of improvisation. Well, I got to figure that love spine <laughs> is going to have a, a long run. They met between L5 and L7. I stalled for a second <laughs> to try to come up with something better, but love spine was just like fighting to be the name of that show. But yeah, you got to like, and, and then it'll be Fridays and Saturdays. Like otherwise, like we were going to have to do a whole other set of programming for Fridays and Saturdays while, yeah. while we spent all this time on the, just Thursdays. So yeah. I think it's the, the goal is ultimately to pay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Again, there's another six hours that we could talk. Yeah, but, for uh, <laughs> sure. We'll just do this another time. We'll do this another time. Also, people can see some of the things that you are putting out. Uh, you're having some conversations with yeah. a uh, developing and expanding panel of folks on a variety of topics. Yes. Um, there'll be links to all that. If you want to say a, a word or two about that, you certainly can. Sure. It's just Inside Improv. Uh, it's me, Joe Bill, and Elise Rodriguez. And then, yeah, sometimes special guests like Velvet Wells pops in and uh, John Gerbertatios and uh, but we've been talking to people about improv on and off the stage and a lot of conversations about international improv and improv mm-hmm. business so yeah yeah there's been a lot of good stuff there and uh, Elise's great the Elise and John show is is, is a I, great uh, one as well yep and story yeah. chain with Joe Bill but Elise and John everyone should be listening to Elise and John yeah, for sure. yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Well, 
Stacy, I really am glad that we had the time to chat. And of course, there'll be links and all that kind of stuff. But uh, pay attention to what's happening at Curious Comedy. I'll be interested to see how this new relaunch goes for you and for improv overall. But really enjoyed the time. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This whole episode was great. And we had a great conversation afterwards, too. Stacy is so generous in her time and insights, so pulling out a couple of points at the end of the episode is tough. For whatever reason, though, I want to highlight a quick thing that came up, and that was the discussion of the jewelry business with the 20% focus on creativity and new artistic work, and 80% on what's tried and true selling. Stacy later on mentioned that that aspect of that business comes up all the time for her, and it stuck with me as well as something that we should be thinking about to the extent that we might need to balance the artistic and business aspects of our pursuit of the very different type of art that we produce. I appreciate the high level of entrepreneurship that comes out in conversation with Stacy, and there's a lot more that we could have discussed on being in a position of leadership in an improv theater community. But note that several times Stacy discussed the intentionality that is required to keep improv communities from becoming too insular or stagnant, as well as doing things smartly, both for yourself and for the community. Like me, I'm sure you'll be watching with interest what Stacy and her team do from here on out. To help you keep up with Stacy, you can find a number of links and resources on the episode webpage at improvcomedyconnection.com. Let me also just thank you again for listening to voices like Stacy's. To help more people hear the insights and perspectives of those voices that we do share here, would you please share the podcast with a friend and rate and subscribe to the Improv Comedy Connection. Please do the same for other podcasts that are making your life and your craft better. It takes no time, but you'll make those other hosts' day by taking just a few seconds to click five stars and maybe a minute to write a quick, encouraging review. Again, my name is Witt Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee, and I'm with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Witchiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witchiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. I'm doing this to be of help to you and others as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.